Uh, Lord, we think of the words that we sang, that our acts of worship are such a tiny offering compared to Calvary. That it was for the glory that stood before him that Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. And we face many times in our lives that um, we're in positions that we wouldn't choose or maybe that we would desire promotion from them to a different position. But Lord, I pray that we would be able to look at whatever we're placed in in life as one that is an opportunity to glorify you in and though we might despise the shame that's involved or that we might despise the, um, the placement or the humility or whichever, that we would have the joy of knowing that you could be glorified in it, that it's an offering of worship to you, that it brings you praise, that it brings you glory. And Lord, relationships so often can be this way. Um, and I would pray, Lord, that uh, this morning as we, as we continue and conclude this section on worshiping you in our relationships, worshiping you with our lives, that you would draw our attention to these principles is in, a, in a summary way. Lord, we uh, thank you again for this special Sunday where we honor our mothers and um, pray, Lord, um, for those um, who are reflecting back on time with their mothers, with their mothers no longer here or, or maybe estranged from them. And Lord, these are, um, we live uh, cursed by sin that brings death, that brings harm to relationships. But Lord, we thank you for motherhood. We thank you, Lord, for your plan for it. And um, Lord, we pray that in this day, all of us would find the opportunity to thank you for it and to reflect fondly on ways that you ministered to us through our mothers and, and to offer that gratitude to them uh, if we should have the opportunity. I just pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're coming to a close, the closing passage on our section in Colossians that deals with relationships. And as you've heard me say for the last number of weeks, relationships are a place where we have the opportunity to worship Christ in the way that we live together. And this comes from Colossians 3.17, in which we're told to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I have been conditioned against Mother's Day messages by my mom. So mothers, you can blame her if you were hoping for one this morning. My mom told me that she always hated the Mother's Day messages that were given at the church in which we grew up in because they tended to make her feel like a failure. <laughs> Not to say I would never give a Mother's Day message, but um, I remember one in particular that she was explaining to me. I shared this with our small group um, this week or, or so, and, and it, was, it happened to be that a 
few weeks prior to that that my brother, who as kids can be, wasn't always planning ahead and came to my mom and told her that there was a class play the following day and for that play he was a lion and she was supposed to make him a lion costume for it. And this was about 8.30 at night. My mom opted to say, well, you're going to need to explain to your teacher that you did not inform me, nor did anyone inform me, that a lion costume was supposed to be made. And as a consequence, you don't have one. And that's just how it's going to be. A couple of weeks later for the Mother's Day message, it just happened that to be that the pastor chose an exa- as an example and he was um, going on and shared that and, and our moms who, who and literally shared our moms who would stay up all hours of night making that lion costume that we needed for the next day and my brother was sitting next to my mother in the pew and elbowed her in the ribs So you can blame the pastor that we grew up under that there's no Mother's Day message today. No. Um, But we are moving on in Colossians. And I do believe, I I have to couch my words correctly here, being that we're talking about slaves and masters. I do believe that husbands, mothers, fathers, wives, employees, children, that there is an amazing message here reflecting back on the fact that it is in our relationships, it is in our stations in life that we find the greatest opportunity to worship God. And so with that, we're going to move here into um, our passage that we're looking at. These are from verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1 in Colossians says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So today, we're looking at the idea that we are working for the boss of bosses. He's been called the king of kings and the lord of lords, And basically what he's being called in this passage, our Lord is being called the boss of all bosses. Our central idea is the fact that whether you're the bosser or the bossy, as followers of Christ, all followers of Christ should be serving Christ. Whether you are the bosser or the bossy, all followers of Christ should be serving Christ. And we, I take this from his statement, you are serving the Lord Christ. And actually, we'll get into this, but this is the point in the passage where he's speaking to both slaves and masters 
And he's saying, you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. And so this is really the pivot point in this passage and that's typically where we get our central idea from as we move through a passage of scripture together. So this is really the pivot point where the statement is made, you slaves, masters, you're both serving the Lord Christ. In a lot of ways, um, these verses, verses 22 through 41 that we're looking at today, as I said, in a lot of ways, they're summary ideas of all of these passages on relationships that we've been looking at. Um, we looked at the relationship of wives and husbands. We looked at the relationship of children and parents. And then we, and we moved into the relationships of now of slave and master. But even prior to this, we were looking at relationships of how we need to proact or re- lovingly react to one another, how we need to proactively love one another. In all of these, these summary ideas of it is Christ whom you are serving applies back to all of these. And, and so it, it fits as a very summary passage. And I believe that Paul in some ways was using the example of the slave and master in the Roman Empire as kind of a summary idea that in all these relationships we have the opportunity to worship Christ with them. But Paul has the most to say about slaves and masters. And there's really two reasons that I see for this. First of all, the relationship of slaves and masters was central to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire contained um, at least 60 million slaves. This would be one-fifth of of the population of the United States today in a world having 5 billion people. So this is a huge amount of people for the time of the Roman Empire, 60 million people. I'll just read to you from um, the uh, IVP, Bible Background Commentary, what it says about um, the conditions of uh, slavery and master relationship in the Roman Empire. It says, like all other slave law, Roman law had to address the dual status of slaves. By nature, they were persons, but from an economic standpoint, they were disposed of as property. The head of the household could legally execute his slaves. And they would be executed if the head of the household was murdered. So head of the household is murdered. Okay, well, we're just going to... Could have been one of the slaves, and I guess they don't have an owner anymore, so they would execute the slaves. Slaves composed a large part of the agricultural workforce in parts of the empire. They actually competed with free peasants for the same work. Slaves were found in all professions and generally had more opportunity, actually, uh, for social advancement than free peasants. They were able to work for the achieve, uh, to, and achieve freedom, and some freed slaves actually became independently wealthy themselves. This social mo- mobility, he writes, applied especially to the household slaves. Economically, socially, And with regard to freedom to determine their future, these slaves were actually better off than most free persons in the Roman Empire. 
Most free persons were rural peasants working as tenant farmers on, a va- on the vast estates of wealthy landowners. But it's interesting that even in these conditions, Paul was not calling for a rebellion among the slaves. In fact, 1 Timothy 6 gives us a sense of, of how the gospel could affect this um, social uh, uh, situation in the Roman Empire. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as bond slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not disrespect on the ground uh, that they are the brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So many thought, many slaves who became believers at that time were under the impression that, well, I'm a new creation, I'm a new person, um, I don't have this obligation anymore. Many times people would become slaves because of financial obligation um, of their own or maybe financial obligation of their parents. And so it would be a trade. We'll pay this debt, but you will be my slave at this point. Um, In the situation in which there was a believing master and a believing slave, as you can see in, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul's concern was the furtherance of the gospel and he was, he was telling them, this is not just because you're both believers, this is not an opportunity to disrespect your master. And in fact, he was saying, even more so, you should be able to have a working relationship between the two of you because you're both followers of Christ. And even more respect should be given. So, Paul, we even see though, that Paul does encourage slaves to seek their freedom um, should they become believers as slaves. He writes in 1 Corinthians 7, were you bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. In other words, don't go and argue, well, I'm a new person now. I should be freed from this old obligation. But he does write here, parenthetically, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So Paul is interacting with this condition of slavery and the status of being a slave within the Roman Empire here. Uh, he is interacting quite a bit with, with uh, this social situation. So this is the first reason why Paul pro- dedicates so much attention to the role of slave and master. And I believe that it could be applied today to the role of employee and employer. And we'll get to that. But the second thing that's very interesting that uh, is the reason why Paul dedicates so much time to here is because of two men that were involved. One is by the name of Philemon. And if you uh, are aware, we have a book of the New Testament, which is a letter written from Paul to a man named Philemon. And he's involved in the situation with Paul at this present time. The other man is a man named Onesimus. Onesimus. Philemon was a member of the church in Colossae. And he was led to the Lord by Paul, probably during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which is also where Epaphras 
would have been led to the Lord by Paul and returned to Colossae and been a part of the planting of the church in Colossae. And Epaphras travels to Rome. If you remember, this is the occasion of the writing of the book of Colossians to inform Paul of what's going on in the church of Colossae. While Epaphras, I don't know if it was while Epaphras is within Rome, but during Paul's stay in Rome, this slave Onesimus runs away from his master Philemon, who Philemon being a member of the church in Colossae. And it might have been that he was on a household errand. This would have been uh, common for a slave who was trusted by their master to carry out household errands, travel for them, carry out business for them, things like this. And it may have been that when he was departed from him that he separated himself from, from Philemon's Uh, from his obligation to Philemon and he shows up in Rome meets with Paul gets to know Paul Paul leads Onesimus the slave to Christ at some point in time Epaphras shows up who's the pastor in Colossae and I I can just imagine the uh, oh aren't you Onesimus isn't your master back in Colossae And so this is what's going on here. So we read, this is why we read, and we'll look at this in two weeks, as in Paul's closing remarks, in his letter to the Colossians, which he's also sending with Tychicus, um, who is helping Paul. Tychicus is carrying the letter to to the Colossians. He's also carrying the letter to the Ephesians. He's also carrying a letter to Philemon, which we have in the New Testament. But traveling with him is Onesimus, back to Colossae. He had run away from his master and his obligations there as an unbeliever, had become a believer, and now was returning back. We read about this in Colossians 4, where Paul says, I have sent Tychicus to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He's writing this to the church in Colossae. And with him, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Part of that aspect of everything that has taken place here is Philemon, this man who was your slave, has become a brother in Christ. And you'll actually, it'd be interesting for you to read the letter to Philemon sometime this week. You'll actually see in that that this is Paul's letter of recommendation that they carry with them back to Colossae along with the letter from the Colossians. And in it, Paul is is asking Philemon to consider releasing his brother Onesimus from his bondage of slavery. And it's kind of interesting how Paul uh, writes that, kind of saying, um, Philemon, I'm the one that led you to Christ and, and I send our brother Onesimus to you. If there's any payment that would be required charge it to my account. So, in other words, Paul is using his influence as a spiritual father of Philemon, asking him to please release Onesimus from his bondage. So we see Paul's opinion in a lot of ways of slavery in that way. So back to our passage here. D.A. Carson writes, the teaching in this section being to bond servants and masters, it applies equally to work done today and shows that a worker's motivation 
and his standards of workmanship are to be the best possible since they are done for the sake of Christ. So today we're not talking about slaves and masters because I don't think we have any slaves and masters here, right? Okay. We are talking about these principles as they apply to bosses and bossies, as we've stated, to the employee today. So this applies to the guy that puts the sticky note on the hot air dryer in the bathroom that says, press button for a word from the boss. This applies to relationships that we have in the workforce today. And I've had coffee with you guys. I've, I've sat down for breakfast with you guys. We've talked around and a lot of your workplaces are tough. I mean, melting steel and dealing with book orders and dealing with layoffs and supervisors and, empl- and employers and, or running a business These are not easy situations. And so I look forward to this passage. I've looked greatly forward to this passage today because I think it has a lot to do with us today. Um, But much of this also applies to our roles as husbands and wives, as children and parents, as students and teachers, as as elders and flock. Um, even if you don't work outside of the home, I hope that you'll listen to these statements because I think the motivation of our service to others is laced all throughout this passage of Scripture. So we read here, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. So the idea here, this first idea is following Christ means working for Christ in the workplace. Following Christ means working for Christ in the workplace. When he says here, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, he is saying, oh, sorry, He is saying here the same way that children are called to obey their parents. The term is tune your ear to their command. Tune your ear to their command. Now, notice when he says obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. The term here that he uses as he writes is your masters according to the flesh. There's a reason for this. He's All throughout this passage of scripture, he's contrasting earthly masters with Christ as our master. And we can't really see that as much in the English, but when he uses this term here for your earthly masters, he's using the the Greek term kurios. But when he says here, um, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the kurios. So, in Greek, he's using the same term for both master and lord. And so, he's contrasting, he's saying, obey your masters in the flesh, fearing the master. So, all throughout this scripture, as you see this, try to keep that in mind, that he's talking about the earthly masters and the master 
that we will give an account to. Um, he moves on here, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Uh, you know, they say that the only man who is a good loser is the one who's playing golf with his boss. In other words, we, we have a tendency to be a good loser if it works to our advantage. And why is that situation, that a man is a good lose, loser if he's playing golf with his boss? It's because he wants to please this person. The boss is there. If it was somebody else there, he maybe would behave differently, as the joke goes. So the first motivation that's contrasted here is that of being a people pleaser or for eye service. So the challenge here is that we're not only to work harder only when the boss is around. And if we're always working hard, it shouldn't be just to please the boss, what he's saying here. But he contrasts with that the second motivation that should be our motivation but with a sincerity of heart. Not as eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. This translates literally a singleness of heart. And that's contrasted with this idea of, oh, is the boss around? I'm working hard, I'm working hard, and boss not here, okay. He's saying with a singleness of heart, no matter if it's seen or unseen, no matter if it's paid attention to or not paid attention to, our work in everything that we do, he is saying, should be with a singleness, a sincerity of heart. And he goes on to say that this single concern is a fear of the Lord, a fear of the master, the master, the boss, the boss of bosses. I think that it's a common question that we have. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Does this mean I'm like quaking? I'm worried? Does this mean um, I don't want to be around him? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm afraid of something, it, I tend to stay away from it. And, and it kind of helps to call it, it's more of a reverence for the Lord. But I appreciate a, a definition that Paul David Tripp gives that says to fear God means that my life is structured by a sense of awe, worship, and obedience that flows out of recognizing him and his glory. He becomes the single most important reference point for all that I desire, think, do, and say. God is my motive, and God is my goal. The fear of God is meant to be the central organizing force in my life. So in other words, if I'm at work or if I'm dealing with my spouse or dealing with my child or dealing with my neighbor, a sense of awe, of worship and obedience should flow out from recognizing him and his glory in that situation. That's what it is to be motivated by a fear of the boss, the big boss. Colossians is saying that our work is to be out of a desire to worship God with it. And he moves on to say, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So this kind of rules out that idea of us saying, hey man, I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing it for God and he's telling me to take my time, you know? Saying, no, what you do, do it heartily 
And literally that means from the soul. You know, with all of yourself. The sentence structure here, I really, I really appreciate. I get into this. I never understood English grammar until you study another language. And, and, that's, and that's really the case here. So let me, let me geek out on you here a little bit. Let's imagine, let's imagine this is a present, okay? All right, so the top here is a bow, all right? <laughs> okay, so in grammar... The direct object is what it is that your action is acting upon. The indirect object is, if you will, I'm sure there's conditions where it's not this, but if you will, the indirect object would be the receiver of that object that your action is working upon. Okay? So if this were a gift, and I were going to give the gift to someone else, say to my spouse, to my wife, so I'm giving the gift to Kelly. And the gift is the direct object. The receiver is the indirect object. So the gift, I'm giving the direct object, the gift to Kelly, the indirect object. And so here's where, you know, kind of an aha moment that I had in my study this week is in, in diagramming this when he says, whatever you do, that's a direct object. Whatever you do, Work heartily. That's the verb. I'm going to give this heartily. As for the Lord, not for men. So the picture here is there's God and there's men. There's my boss or there's my whoever it is that I have the potential of doing this for. That I'm going to whatever I do, do it for the Lord. Not for men. That strikes me. This is a great principle for anyone who is doing something for other people. Schoolwork, yard work, cooking a meal, doing laundry, playing on a team, rehearsing a play, serving in the church, visiting someone hurting, cleaning the garage, doing your chores, cooped up with a baby all day long. Whatever we do, he's saying, give it to God. Do it for God, not for men. If you think of the vending machine picture versus the altar of worship, this is what repentance looks like. It's to say, you know, I've been taking my work and I've been plucking it in the vending machine doing this for men. Lord, I repent of this. I want to come to your altar and not serve myself with my work, and I want to lay what I do on your altar as a sacrifice of praise for you. That's life worship. That's life worship. And he gives us a knowledge here. God is always ministering to us with truth. And the enemy is always defeating us with lies. So, so Paul opens the curtain back to see this is what you need to keep in mind. Slaves or employees or moms or dads or children in obeying your parents. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
And I think that this is a particularly strong statement to the slaves that he is writing to. Because there's a big difference between the reward that's given to a slave and the reward that's given to an heir. You guys ever worked alongside of a son of the owner? <laughs> you been there? You know, it's a little different. They're an heir. It's kind of like, oh, this is going to be mine. Now, I don't mean to disparage them. I mean, obviously, they could be doing this for the Lord as well. But I want you to notice this, that he's telling the slaves, knowing you will receive from the Lord the inheritance. I'm not just going to reward you as a slave. I'm going to reward you as a son. An inheritance. I'm sure that these men would have been tempted, these men and women would have been tempted to work all day thinking, all this is just going to be somebody else's someday. And my kids are at home with needs. And God is saying, do this for the Lord. You have an inheritance coming from me. And it's it's no different for us as we work for people, guys. So are you changing your effort because the boss is looking? This is an opportunity to repent. To realize I'm popping my work into the vending machine to get something from my boss. Lord, my work is not for him. It's not for me. It's for you. I want to give it to you as an offering of worship. Are you complaining because you're not getting the credit you deserve? This is an opportunity to repent. I often hear people say, I want to do something for the Lord one day. I hope that this passage of scripture is pointing out clearly to you, wherever he has you, is where he has you to do it for the Lord there, tomorrow, today at home. We have a saying that says, what goes around comes around. And I believe this next verse gets into the fact that following Christ means living with a coming around in mind. There is a coming around that is coming. What goes around does come around. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So like I said before, these statements here are the pivot point where he's speaking to both slaves and masters, both bosses and employees and saying, this is about Christ. And the wrongdoer, bosses or employees, will be paid back for the wrong they have done. This is actually an imperative, meaning it's a command, meaning he's saying, you should be serving Christ, not this other person. This... this um, title he gives is actually kind of a double title. Both Christ is a title for Jesus and the Lord is a title for Jesus. And basically it translates out to the big boss, the master Messiah. This is whom you are serving. It's a particular term for him. And then he backs up with this and explains it with the statement, for the wrongdoer will be paid back paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. There's a statement that we say a lot of times or maybe a 
Maybe a boss might look at an employee just as a reminder to let them know who's boss. And he says, hey, who signs your check? Who signs your check? And what he's saying is, is I'm the boss. And what Paul is reminding us here is that question. Christian, who will sign your eternal check? It's him. It's not this person you're working for. This is between you and him. The biggest payout for right or wrong is coming from the boss of bosses, the king of kings and the lord of lords. He says there is no partiality. God does not see the title on the name tag, he's saying. Uh, There aren't two lines in heaven in standing before the Lord, bosses and employees. Now, Now this would have been probably a stigma And it is even in a culture in which there's a fatalism, uh, maybe where there's a karma sense of, um, well, you you must have been reincarnated as a lower caste or a slave because of something you did before. And so in a culture in which somebody would look at a boss and say, well, he must be a boss because he did something right. And, well, this person must just be an employee because they must have done something wrong. And meaning on God's level. And so in that worldview, there would be this idea that there's probably two lines in heaven. Well, you were an employee because you really stunk stunk with life and you were a boss because, you know, I was impressed with you. So you guys are on the fast track, you know, that sort of thing. So when Paul says there is no partiality, he's saying there's no lines. There's no two lines. Everybody will stand before the Lord for who they are. Doesn't matter what it says on their name tag. What title is there? He cares about how people are treated because people bear his image. Both bosses and employees. If you have a boss, God cares about how you treat your boss because your boss bears his image. If you have employees, God cares about how you treat your employees because your employees bear his image. It is about his glory to him. And we will give an account for how we treated those who bear his image. This applies to elders and members of churches. It applies to parents and their children. It applies to husbands and wives. Those in authority are those under and those under their authority will be paid back from the Lord without partiality. Elders are shepherds under the shepherd Christ. We've learned that husbands are heads of their home under the head Christ. We, learned, we looked at the fact that children are to be under their parents in obedience. And those parents will give an account to the one who has put them in that place. They will give an account to Christ. And that's what he's communicating here. If you'll just kind of remember our, our blocks that we looked at, most epistles follow this structure of laying out this is what it means to be a child of God and then they will kind of turn a corner to say, as Ephesians puts it, now walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Or as Colossians lays out, that in it, the intention is that in everything Christ might have preeminence, that he might be have glory for everything and then turns a corner and says now in everything that you do do it 
for him. Do it in his name. So based on these foundations that my position is a child of God and my devotion is to be towards serving God, if you recall, it's on top of this that, that we have the establishment of the relationships of child and parents. Children are to obey and honor. Parents are to correct and di- disciple. We have the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. And we also, he lays on top of this foundation the job. The social structure. Are we an employee? Are we an, uh, a boss? Am I a supervisor? Am I self-employed? How am I treating my customers? All of this is on the structure of you belong to Christ and your life is to be giving glory to Christ. So that's where he's going. To each of these roles, as they really are, he says, we must understand that our lives are belonging to Christ and also there is a day of reckoning for how we used what, we belong, what belongs to Christ, for how we used our lives. We live under a temptation to think that this world is all that matters. We disregard others to gain position or prestige, maybe. We disregard the fact that a reckoning day is coming. I, I have to tell you, I don't understand it. I, it's... In, you know, in my just kind of black and white, I'm forgiven, I'm a child of God, There's, I know that, that every tear will be wiped away in heaven, that there will be no more pain, but yet we're told there is a day of reckoning. We are told that, that we will be paid back the wrong that we have done in some way. So I don't quite understand that. I don't is it fewer jewels in your crown? I've you know, heard people say or something like that. So I confess, I, my knowledge, my understanding stops there and I think, I don't know if we're necessarily told a whole lot there. But I do believe that one moment in God's presence can bring regret for when we didn't fear him. And I do believe that eternity is made up of many more moments than this earth is. And it will matter exponentially more than the little bit of humility that we chose to show here on this earth and decided, Lord, this is not about me. This is for your glory. This is not about my glory. So he moves forward and starts speaking to masters. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. You remember we talked about what it means to be like a steward. I shared that when I uh, worked as a waiter at a restaurant um, in graduate school, there was the guy that was always there counting, you know, the tortillas and, uh, you know, making sure all, you know, how much silverware do we have left and, and, um, counting the money that's in the cash box and, and all that. And then there would be the guy that would kind of show up and say, hey, how's it going? What's, is everything all right? Well, the guy that was showing up and just kind of nonchalant about it, he was the owner. The guy that was doing all the work was the manager. He didn't own it, but it was his responsibility to take care of it. He was a steward of that restaurant. That's what a manager is. They're given the stewardship of that business to manage it for the owner. 
And so that's kind of the picture here that we're given, that masters are told here, that following Christ means being a steward of earthly advantage. He's telling them follow, being, follow, being a follower of Christ means being a steward of that earthly advantage that we have. He tells them, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. He's actually saying, give them justice. Give them fairness. This was completely countercultural. Justice or fairness was something that was considered to be only due to a free person. But that slaves were basically at the mercy of their bosses, at the mercy of their masters. Masters would have seemed very odd to be treating their slaves like a person or like they would want to be treated. To treat them like a brother in Christ, that would have been completely weird. And this is the condition in the kingdom of God all over the Roman Empire at that time. Slaves coming to Christ, masters coming to Christ, and it was totally turning this cultural norm upside down. And Paul is telling them, you should be treating each other as brothers in Christ. I know that there's an obligation of one to the other, and masters consider forgiving that obligation, but you're not lesser people, he's telling them. And this was completely countercultural at that time. And notice, just as the slaves are told, knowing that you have an inheritance coming as a reward, the masters are given the knowledge that they need also to defeat this cultural norm. And it was knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Some Greek and Roman writers would argue that masters should show restraint. But the only times when they would argue that, the only reasoning that they would give to that was um, to warn that, you know, you could end up a slave one day. I guess if they went bankrupt or maybe if their country was overrun by another um, and they were sold off into slavery or something like that, the, the ethical writers of that day would only warn, masters, watch out, you could be a slave one day. But this was like completely uncommon. Now, this isn't unlike parents, though, warning their kids, you're going to be a parent one day. So that is common, and that you should listen to. Paul's warning here is different. He's saying, knowing you are actually a slave, masters. You have a master in heaven. Again, the same term. You have a master in heaven. Can you imagine the discussion? Bob, why are you treating your slave like a son? Well, it's because I'm not actually a master to someone else. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Christ. And he's watching me. And this is what he's telling me to do. And so, try not to hear this as, yeah, this is what my boss should be doing. Try to hear this as, for those you have influence, for those you have earthly advantage over, God's expectation is for you to remember that you have a master in heaven and he is commanding you to respect this person as being made in the image of God and to show humility and to show love, loving reaction, proactive love toward them. He would have said, because I have a master in heaven who's watching me. 
So looking back over this uh, series, I just wanted to read a statement here by Warren Wearsby. <clears throat> he says, We see once again the preeminence of Jesus Christ in our lives as believers. Christ must be the head of the home. It is by his power and authority that we should live in our daily relationships. If he is the preeminent one in our lives, we will, then we will love each other, submit to each other, obey, and treat one another fairly in the Lord. This should affect all of these relationships we've looked at. Strained relationships, um, op- relationships where we have the opportunity to be proactive with each other, husbands and wives relationships, parents and children, employees and bosses as well. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to uh, come up here at this time. But I wanted to um, point out for you or to remind you, if you look on the back of your bulletin, each week, sometimes it's not different, but most of the time it is, each week we put on there a prayer focus. And what this is, is what we want as a body in our times alone with the Lord or, or as, as couples, as families, we want to ask that you would make this a focus of your prayer time. This week, it's harvest, that harvesters, that's my little, I came up with that term. Anyways. Harvesters would, be, would do what we do throughout the week for God as our boss of bosses. Secondly, harvesters will find fulfillment and joy in serving Christ in every area of work and ministry. And thirdly, that others will notice our effort for God's glory and come to Christ or come closer to Christ. I want to encourage you to start incorporating these prayer focuses into your week. Prayer is so vital. Prayer is so important. We'll look at that a little bit next week. Uh, with the closing of Colossians. And um, I'm planning on, as the small groups are going to be closing, um, I'm plan- planning on uh, this summer, that on Wednesday evenings, uh, to have an open time of prayer here at the church. We want to be praying for ourselves in this community, ourselves in our homes, that we might image God's glory around us and that we might have the opportunity to make an impact on those around us. So I want to invite you to be thinking about that as well. Thanks.